these weeks of setting us straight, uh, using the book of Titus to help us understand what it means to be uh, strong and mature Christians, and uh, then as a group of strong and mature Christians, that we might become a strong and mature church, uh, living out the principles of God's Word. And we find ourselves in Titus chapter 3 this morning, and we'll be looking especially at verses 3 through 8. Now, usually about this time in the service, we have uh, participated in the Lord's table, and uh, I got a call uh, late last night that uh, one of our elders, John Redmond, who is to lead the time, uh, is home with the stomach flu, and so I'll be leading our time, and he says, do you want me to send my notes for communion? And I said, John, do you see where we're at in, uh, in our text in Titus? And he says, uh, we're somewhere in chapter 3. And I told him to quickly look, and he got mad. He says, I'm not feeling good. Why are you making me do this? I says, do you want to lead communion tomorrow? He said, no, I'll look. So he looked, and he said, wow, that passage just works great for communion. And so what we'll be doing is we'll be looking at our text, and at the end of the message we'll uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper together as a way of reflection on what we've learned from this great passage of Scripture scripture. Well, as we turn to Titus chapter 3, let's go ahead and stand and look to the reading of God's word, and then we'll ask for God's blessing and jump right in. This is what Titus chapter 3, I'm going to start in verse 1 where we were looking at last week, and then go through verse 8. It says, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility toward all men. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that, having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. Father God, we are reminded at the end of our passage today that the words we read are excellent and profitable. And Lord, I pray today that each and every one of us who have entered into this place, who have sung praises to you, who have bowed their head in prayer, would be reminded that you have given us your word so that it may be excellent and profitable to us. Lord, today is a day where we learn about who we were before you came for us. We learn about how you came and saved us. We learn as to the result of what takes place after that great exchange of our sin and your righteousness. And so, Lord, I pray that if there's someone today who's never trusted you as their Savior, that today would be the day of salvation. Likewise, Father, I pray that for those that have trusted Christ as their Savior, that we would be reminded yet again of your love that you have lavishly poured out on us as we have sung and as we should be reminded how deep your love for us is. Lord, we thank you for your gift of Jesus Christ, and we long to learn more about you this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. 
couple months ago, I uh, was able to get a, a new phone. Now, uh, I uh, really enjoyed my old phone, but this new one was one that had all the bells and whistles. I was able to get it because Sprint had messed up my uh, account, and uh, when I went to the people, they said, hey, it's your lucky day. You can upgrade for free. I said, hey, I like that. And, uh, and they said, which phone do you want? I said, I want the most expensive one. Give it to me. And uh, they gave me this phone, and it's pretty much a handheld computer. And one of the things that I love most about this phone is it syncs up with all of my calendars, and I can give myself reminders at all times. In fact, today at about 7.55, I get a reminder that I'm supposed to be at church. Now, I'm not sure at 7.55 what that's going to do for me if I'm not at church, but at least I know you guys are here, and you are worshiping the Lord without a preacher. But nonetheless, I have all these reminders over and over again coming up, appointments with different people. I even have when my bills need to be paid because I know how Amanda gets if she doesn't have electricity or any gas to do any cooking. And so I make sure that I have these reminders. These reminders are of a great help. Now, I'm sure that the person that created this app of reminding recognized the tendency that we have as people when it comes to being forgetful. Now, there are some things we don't forget. Like men, we don't forget our wives' birthdays and our anniversaries, correct? We don't need to put that in an application on our phone. But there are many things that we forget, There are many times that we find ourselves being distracted by the things going on around us that we forget an event or a meeting that is of great importance. And so I wonder if the maker of this app had found himself or herself missing things because of the lack of reminders and the cost and the pain of missing an important business meeting or missing a child's uh, baseball or basketball game or missing that special appointment that you have with your spouse, how important it is that we be there and be there, of course, on time. Well, Scripture is a gracious reminder for us, not just something simply that is put on our phone that tells us where we need to be and when we need to be there, but it speaks to us because our spiritual lives aren't any different from the regular physical realm. We as Christians are prone to forget, forget who we are in Christ, Forget the blessings God has given us and showered upon us. We forget where we've been before we met Christ. We have forgotten many times where we are heading. And at the same time, we have spiritual forces all around us that distract us, that give us all kinds of false messages of pursuing self and pursuing the things of this world instead of pursuing Christ. And so we begin to forget the gracious reminders that God has placed in his scripture. As a result of all of these powerful forces, they cause us to revert to our old ways. They make us distracted from being the follower of Christ that he's called us to be. They cause us to forget what God has done in our hearts and as a result of that, to not live the life of gratitude that he has called us to live. 
And so as a result of all those things, and us beginning to forget the important truths of Scripture, two things begin uh, to happen, if you will, two different extremes. Even before we get into our outline this morning, I want you to do some writing. There are two things that can happen when we begin to forget who we are and what Christ has done for us. The first thing that can happen that I want you to write down in your outlines is we grow lax in our spiritual life. We grow lax When we begin to forget what Christ has done for us and what he's doing for us, as believers, we begin to uh, allow ourselves to be lax. We lose some of our discipline. We begin to think that we can do the Christian life on our own. And as a result of that, we neglect the spiritual disciplines. We say, hey, I can accomplish all that I need to. Who really needs to study their Bible? And who really needs to go to church? And who really needs to be a part of Christian fellowship? I can do this on my own. And as a result of that, as the reminders grow more and more distant in our minds and in our hearts, so our walk with God becomes more distant. And our slide into the world and our pursuit becomes more and more intimate to the things of our culture and this world. And as a result of that, we can't stop at one moment to think that our laxness, if you will, to the things of God will not lead us to become cozy with the things of this world. And some of you are there this morning. Some of you think that it's okay to be lax in your Christian walk, that it's your Sunday morning thing. But the scriptures tell us over and over again that we must be devoted. In fact, at the end of our passage this morning, he says that we must be careful to devote ourselves to such things. We need to be devoted. We can never let our foot off the gas, if you will, when it comes to our spiritual fervor. And so as a result of that, we must be careful to be always reminded of the importance of of following Christ. Now the next thing that we can do is another extreme. We can either go lax on one side or we can become legalistic. And within that idea of legalism is the under, other tendency to adhere to all that God has said and, and doing all that he has commanded us to do. But what we begin to do as we do those things is we begin to get a chip on our shoulder. We begin to look at the world around us and say, hey, look, I'm able to do these things. I'm pursuing righteousness. I'm doing the things that I need to do. Why doesn't everybody else? What's their problem? And so we look at our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we begin to look at them, and we look down our noses at them and say, what's their problem? Why can't they do what the Bible says? Why do they fall into these sins? And even worse, what happens is we look at the outside world of sinners and we begin to look at them as uh, terrible and dirty people instead of being the people that God has called us to love and to serve. And so two extremes happen when we forget who we were before Christ and what Christ has done for us. And all of us, no doubt, deal with one of these tendencies at times, either lax or either legalistic. The reason why I bring this up is because the connection between the way that we live with the outsiders, the people of this world, and how we understand our uh, gracious reminder of salvation is connected. In our text today, Paul is going to speak to us like a father. He gives Titus, he gives the church at Crete, and he gives us today a gracious reminder on how the gospel has changed our life. 
Now, for some of you, you say, I've been there, I've done that, I've heard it, yeah, 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 Tim, I got it. It isn't so big of a deal, and if that is the case, then you are far more lax than you would ever know. The gospel should ignite our hearts. The gospel should uh, take us from the deepest place of sorrow to the greatest place and pinnacle of joy because we live in a culture of death, and it is Jesus Christ who has brought us life. Now notice what he says in verses 1 and 2, just as a way of reminder. He says, the, remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. He says, to be obedient, to be ready to do what is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. The job that we have as believers is to show such a wonderful and beautiful life amongst those who are unbelievers that they will want to hear Christ. They want to know about Christ. But what begins to happen in verses 1 and 2 in our life and culture today is we begin to think, we begin to become hostile towards the world around us. We begin to find ourselves pursuing uh, things like political agendas and, and ways of communicating the evilness of the world instead of promoting the love and affection that that scripture speaks of in verse 2. And what we begin to think and what we begin to do, instead of reminding the world of the gospel, we begin to follow uh, political agendas. And that's about as good and as healthy as putting a Band-Aid on a cancer patient. While it's effective in some ways, while it's your right uh, uh, as an American citizen, we must recognize that the world around us needs the gospel of Jesus Christ. We can't do anything to change our culture except with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we need to make sure that we turn to that gospel, and that's what Paul does. He says to us, hey, if you want to be the kind of people you need to be with regards to rulers and authorities and with regards to the people in your society, then you need to be reminded of a couple things. And I want to look at those things this morning. Now, I'm going to scare you with my outline, but I want to to say up front that most of my points will be very quick. And I want to just focus in on a couple points, but if I don't have them as points, we will run right by them. And so let's look uh, at each of these points and uh, pull from what, uh, what Scripture has for us to say. The first thing that Paul reminds us of is our problem with sin. Our problem with sin. Now this is of great importance because what we see here, it's, it's not seen in the NIV. In fact, the NIV omits a clause that should be there between uh, verse 2 and verse 3. It says in verse 2, to slander no one, to be peaceable, to be considerate, and to show true humility towards all men. There should be some sort of clause like the word because or for or something that connects verse 3. In fact, verses 1 through 8 is one long paragraph of a common thought. And, And because of our English translations, we miss some of that. And so here's this connection. The reason why we are to be obedient and ready to do whatever is good and to slander no one and be peaceable and considerate and to show true humility to all men is because we too once were sinners. We too once were exactly where the people of this world were. And so it's a reminder that we have been at the same place that the people around us, our neighbor, our coworkers, our friends were there. It's easy for us to become impatient to become even hostile with the people of this world because of their sin. But we must never forget that we too were there once. 
This is a tendency that I'm growing uh, more and more aware of as my children grow older. And as especially my oldest one now uh, is uh, especially now starting to have feelings about uh, his uh, image of people and, and what's going on in his life, I have to be careful because I remember uh, feeling like uh, my parents didn't care about the things that were going on. My son will tell me, Dad, don't be late to pick me up. I don't like to be the last person picked up from school. And I said, oh, come on, son, it's not that big of a deal. And then I remembered not being happy when I was the last person to be picked up. And forgetting the the somewhat of the, and we can laugh about this as parents, is the, the feeling of, man, where is my mom and dad? Why are they always so late and all of those things? And we need to recognize that we too once were there. That to an eight-year-old kid, being the last kid to be picked up is a big thing. Now to a 34-year-old dad, that's the last thing I'm thinking about. And we begin to forget that we once, too, were young kids. We do this with our teenagers. We do this in regards to setting up rules, things that we used to fight as children. We begin to forget uh, the struggle that we as children had to following those rules. We forget. We forget that we, too, were once young and foolish, but that's not what Paul is talking about here. He's not saying that this is about generations. He's saying this involves Christians and non-Christians that we must never forget because when we begin to forget what happens for us as Christians, we become legalistic towards those around us. Why can't they live like I do? Why aren't their marriages look like mine does? Now notice what the word we there is for. That word we, if you underline or circle in your Bible, that's a word you want to circle. At one time, verse 3 says, we too were foolish. That word we includes the Apostle Paul. It includes Titus. It includes the leaders of the church. It involved all of the Cretans. And it involves all of us today. We're all sinners. Let that sink in this morning. You and I were all sinners And the description that's going to be given is going to be one that we can either fight or we can accept. That we can fight and say, no, that wasn't me, or we can accept it and say, that is a a wonderful reminder of who I was before Christ. Now, the things he's going to share are not things that are characteristic of all sinners, but it's a picture of what we were like before meeting Christ. Now, notice there are three things that involve uh, this problem with sin. First of all, our attitudes. Our attitudes were an issue when it came to our sinful nature. Paul uses three words. Two lead to a third. And so there's two that I want to explain first, and then I want to finish up with the final one, and that is, the first of all, the word foolish. This is the word anoetos. This Greek word literally means not having a mind. What does that mean? Well, Paul uses two other times this phrase of anoetos, and it has to mean being spiritually discerned, not being able to discern the things of God. Now, the reason why Paul says that we were disobedient was because, first of all, we were foolish. Notice for a moment, if you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. If you're in the book of Titus, head over to uh, the book of 1 Corinthians, which is to your left. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse uh, 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. This speaks to the natural man. 
and the foolishness that the things of God are, he says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because, he, because they are spiritually discerned. The idea here is that when our friends and our neighbors look to the things of God, just as we did before coming to know Christ, we looked at them with great suspicion. They looked like foolishness to us. Who would actually believe that, that God sent his son Jesus and that somehow the blood of Jesus would take care of my sin? Whoever told me that I had sin? These are the kind of thoughts that we had as unbelievers. And we carried around this attitude. In fact, just for a moment, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18 uh, speaks to this as well. Ephesians 4, 18, he says in verse 17, So I tell you and insist on this to the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. We must understand that unbelievers do the things they do because they're foolish. And right before we begin to start thinking and start beginning to call them out for their foolishness, we must recognize that we too once were foolish We too once did not understand the things of God, did not understand the love that God has shown us. Now notice the next word he uses. The reason why we're disobedient, we're foolish. And then he uses the word deceived, pleinomeno. It's used six times in the New Testament. It means to wander and to go astray. Now this word pleinomeno is an important word. It's a word that is found in passive voice. And so it means that we are deceived and that this deception happens from an outside force or person. That's what it means in the passive. Is that you're not the one who's doing the deceiving, but you're the one who's being deceived by another. The other aspect of this word is it's found in the present tense. Which means that this deception is a continual thing that is going on. And so here we are, we as unbelievers lived our lives and thinking that we were smart to throw off God's standards of purity. We thought we could find happiness in this world apart from God and through the things of this world. We thought as a result that we could violate God's law without any response of God involving himself with us and dealing with us as a result of the penalty for our sin. That's the way we used to think. I can do whatever I want and nothing will ever happen because even if there is a God, he's not going to hold me accountable. Where does that come from? It comes from the idea of the deception of the evil one. The devil says, hey, you can be like God. You can do whatever you want to And you don't have to worry because God's not going to get involved in your life. And if he does, you need to understand that God's just this killjoy that wants nothing to do with your enjoyment and fulfillment. He just wants to be boss and tell you what to do. As a result of that, we follow that deception, the ways of the devil, and we pursue a life of sin. This is what our friends and our neighbors are pursuing, and it's one thing that we pursued as well. As a result of that, it says we became disobedient. Literally, this means we were without persuasion. We disregarded anything from anyone in authority. What that means is we weren't going to listen to anyone. 
We're not going to. Forget it. And that's why we needed to be reminded to be subject to rulers and authorities because we still have that tendency to want to do our own thing and follow our own way of thinking and that which we desire. Now notice this disobedience leads to a next avenue, and that is our appetites. Paul says later here in verse 3 that we are foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. The word enslaved there literally is the word duleo. It's the, from the root uh, doulos, which Paul calls himself in verse 1. Paul, a doulos of God, a slave to God. This word is in the present tense. It speaks of our ongoing enslavement to sin. This doesn't just happen once in the past, but it's a continual lifestyle. This, unlike the other word of deception, is found in active voice, which means that our pursuit and our enslavement towards sin is done not by someone else, but by our willful decision. We can't say that someone else made me do it. Because the Bible clearly says here that we make it as a result of our own decision and our own pursuit of sin. Now notice what it says. It says that we are enslaved to just a couple things, right? Is that what it says? We're enslaved by uh, three things? Is that what your translation says? Uh, One person says no. Anyone else? No. Notice what the word says. We are enslaved to various, the the NIV says. Literally, this Greek word speaks of a kaleidoscope of things. It's a buffet of sins. Now you say, well, Tim, I'm okay with the Ten Commandments. Well, yes, you may not have murdered somebody, but have you had murderous thoughts or thoughts of hatred in your heart? The idea here is that it's not just a list of sins that you can cross off, but it's all the variations, if you will, that come from the Ten Commandments and the commands of Scripture, all of the myriads of ways that we can take those commands and break them. You say, Tim, I've never committed adultery uh, with my, uh, uh, against my wife or my husband. I ask the question, have you done it in your heart and in your mind? You may not have done it physically, but it still is a sin. It is just a part of the kaleidoscope of the various pursuits and pleasures that we long to have in our lives. It's a variation of them. Now notice what he says. He says these various sins involve themselves in passions and pleasures. The word there for passions is the word epithumia. The word there for pleasures is hedomai. The first speaks of internal impulses and passions. We must recognize as a people that there are synapses, there are protons and neutrons, there are impulses and hungers and appetites that wage war within us. There are things that uh, we would want to do if we had every opportunity to do it. We have to be careful not to give in to those impulses, not to pursue those things. But notice the second word isn't, isn't involving, per se, the impulses and the passions, but the latter focuses in on where we find them. The word hedomai is the where we get the word hedonism from, the pursuit of pleasure, pursuing all that we can, long Longing for certain things and going and finding a place for them. Paul says that as unbelievers, we had passions and hungers and desires, and instead of looking to God to answer those, we went and found ways that we could pursue them apart from God. And this is what the world is doing today. The same thing we used to do. Now notice what it says. Again, this is one long sentence here. 
And it's kind of difficult because uh, it, it's supposed to go in one full thing. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passion, and literally in which we lived. The idea here is that this is a continual and ongoing process that we spend our time pursuing these things. There are two ways that you can look at life. The first way you can look at life is the way the world looks at life, and that is to take up life for yourself and to pursue everything for your good and so that you are happy and you are fulfilled. Then there's the life that's found in Christ. And the second life is that you pursue everything that gives glory and honor to God and you pursue him because he is righteous and he is the Lord and Savior in your life. You're going to either follow one of those two paths, either living for self or living for your Savior. Paul says that we invested all our time pursuing ways at how we could please ourselves. As a result of that, it leads to actions. You can't have wrong attitudes and wrong appetites and not allow that to affect your actions. Notice what Paul says at the end of the verse. He says, we lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. The idea here is that because we are selfish, because we uh, pursue our own desires and we are involved in longing after the pleasures of life, that we as human beings will not let anything, we won't allow nothing to stand in our way from getting it. And so as a result of that, it leads to malice. The idea here of malice is a constant ill will towards others. Why do we have ill will towards others? Why is it that the unbelieving world does not pursue true humility towards all men, like it says in verse 2? Because what we say is, if you keep me from what I long for, then I hate you for it. Then you're my enemy, you're not my friend. Because I have longings, I have desires, and you keeping them from me is keeping me from my happiness. And anyone who keeps me from my happiness is not my friend. And so as a result of that, we have ill will towards all people. Now notice what it then says. It says, then we are filled with envy. So we're mad that someone is keeping us from a desire that we have. And then it's even worse because we look over here and we see that our neighbor or our friend or someone at our workplace has the things that we want. And so we grow covetous of those things. We begin to long in our hearts, I want that. I have to have that. And so I'll do whatever I have to to get that which I'm lacking. If you want to see this lived out, we could all take a field trip really quickly to the nursery. And you see two children laying on the ground, and they seem fine. They're, they're loving each other. How you doing? I'm doing fine. How's the wife and kids? We're doing good. How about you? Yeah, works a little slow. And then the one kid grabs one block. And the other kid says, hey, hey, wait a minute. That's my block. Who do you think you are? My happiness, my whole understanding of my life and existence surrounds itself around that block, and I will do whatever I have to to get that block away from you. And that's why we pay the nursery workers big bucks. Because of what ensues. So notice what Paul says. We were hated, and we hate one another. And so the kid with the block says, hey, you took my block. I hate you. And the other kid says, well, if you hate me, you know what I do to you? I hate you. 
And we start world wars over this. Why? Because we're envious. Because we're selfish. Now, I don't have a lot of time. I could focus in. John MacArthur has a quote that this passage of Scripture could be preached for months. He did it one sermon, so I'll do it in one sermon as well. But it could be preached for months. But understand this, that this is a reminder to us not to embarrass us, but to remind us and motivate us. Notice what the text says at the the beginning of verse 3. We too were foolish disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. Notice it doesn't say we lived in, we live in malice. It says we lived in malice. We need to understand this is a motivation of where we were before Christ. And so before you start railing on people around you for their sinful pursuits, before we begin to rail people about how dirty their sin is, let us be reminded that we too, were it not for the grace of God, would be living there today. And if you forget that, then you have forgotten grace. Because if we miss that, we've missed out the whole reason on why we needed to be saved. Now i got to get moving. Here's a short point, just to make sure you know this. Here's a short point. We go to point number two, the only person who saves Notice what the text says. After it reminds us of where we were before Christ, it says, but, I love but. That's the greatest three-letter word you can have at this point. He has shared with us how dirty and awful we were in our standing, but he says, but when the kindness and love of our God, our Savior, appeared, underline, if you do, the word, he saved us. Here we are, dirty. We couldn't be any darker than we were. And Jesus sheds through the darkness and he brings in light. Notice a couple things here about this passage, part of the passage. Admits rebellion and sin comes good news of great joy. Jesus comes. And here's the thing that we need to understand we in our darkness were not just refined. We in our darkness were not given a handbook or a formula on how to fix our lives. We didn't go to what uh, some of our older uh, saints would remember, finishing school, just to kind of finish off some of the rough edges in our lives. But we had one who came and his name is Jesus. This is what makes us Christians We don't believe that through self-improvement and a couple Tony Robbins videos that we can fix our lives. We needed a savior. We were dead and we needed someone to bring us back to life and that person is Jesus Christ. He is not a prophet. He is not a good teacher. He is not one that we just follow his pattern. He is the savior and the son of the God most high. It's Jesus. And we have to remember that. We had such a messed up life. We, our sin was so dirty that it took the Holy Son of God to accomplish the cleanup work in our lives. The Gulf of Mexico and the BP oil spill pales in comparison to the cleanup job that the Son of God has to do in our lives. And we must remember that our sin then caused the Son of God to come and to deal with us. Now notice There's a principle, the third point, the principle regarding our status. 
Why did he do it? We sang about it this morning, how deep the Father's love for us. Notice what he does. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appears, you put those two words together and it gives us the idea uh, of a philanthropy. God's benevolent love, his kind and gracious love towards us. So God admits our sin, admits our pursuit of our life and of our selfishness. God says, you know, he could have gone one of two ways. He could have, as he did in Genesis chapter 6, said, I'm grieved that I made man, and I'm going to wipe out the world. I'm tired of them, and I'll make another group, another lot of them. My dad used to say that as a kid. He used to say, hey, if I don't like the way you're living, I'll, I'll take you out and I'll make another one. I can do it. I did it before. I'll do it again. And I'll I'll even name him Tim Jr. Just to be a reminder of the rebellious one we used to have. God could have done that. He could have looked at our lives in the moment that even a twinkling of sin was in our life, which is at the moment of conception because we're born into sin, David tells us. They said, you know what? No, it doesn't work. Let's get rid of that and let's start again. But he doesn't. Why? Because of his benevolent love. It's his benevolent love. Now notice, this principle regards who we are. So now God's love has come, and it's been showered upon us. Now notice the important thing that's here. He saved us. Notice what it says. I love this part. Because he saw how great Tim would be. Is that in your Bible? It's in mine. Notice, Tim, good-looking, bald guy. Good sense of humor, has a lot of great ideas, and that's why I came. Not because of the righteous things we've done, but according to his mercy. Understand this, especially if you have not trusted Christ as your Savior, there is nothing you can do to turn the eyes of God upon you. And so if you think as a believer that you've done something, we start getting this into our minds. Well, well, the reason why is he saw what great Christian I would be, what great books I would write, what great sermons I would give, how great my Sunday school class would be. That's why he saved us. No, my friends, he didn't save us. The only thing we brought to our salvation was our sin. He saved us because he loves us. He saves us because of his mercy. And because a God of mercy is a God who gains glory. It isn't because of anything that we've done. There's nothing we could do. There's nothing we could say. There's nothing that we might have. But it's based on, please hear me, the unsolicited, unmerited grace of God. We can never forget it because when we do, Paul says we hijack the gospel of Jesus Christ. It no longer is the gospel. Who needs Jesus if we can do it on our own? We can't. Now notice the parts of salvation. Verse 5. It says, we've got to get moving here. It says, uh, he saved us, not because of the righteous things we've done, but according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. There are some parts to salvation in this message, in this uh, passage of Scripture. Not all of them. 
If you think that conversion is the only part of your salvation, then you're missing the wonderful treasure that salvation is. We must remember that salvation begins in the heart and mind of God before the foundations of the world. That's what Ephesians chapter 1 tells us. That God purposed his love upon us even before he created the world. But notice the parts that are spoken about. He brings up the word rebirth. This is the word palingonesia. It literally means again born. The idea here, the reason why instead of saying means born again, is it puts this idea on the emphasis that this isn't the first time we've been born, but it is that we again are experiencing new life as a result of what Christ does. This is the rebirth. Now notice what the text says. It says that this rebirth happens as a result of the Holy Spirit. What's taking place in our lives during the point of salvation when it says that he saved us literally means that the Spirit of Almighty God comes in and does a work that again brings life to us. Now we need to give some definitions so you can have these. Regeneration, if you want to write these down, write fast. Regeneration is the spiritual change wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Spirit in which he or her, in his or her inherently sinful nature is changed so that he and, or she can respond to God in faith and live in accordance with his will. It extends to the whole nature of man, altering his governing disposition, emulating his mind, freeing his will, and renewing his nature. Now, we don't talk about regeneration very often, but I want you to understand this. You can't accept Jesus Christ as your Savior without the regenerating work of the Spirit in your life. Because a dead person cannot accept life until someone brings them back from the dead. Now, how this happens is is the instantaneous work, how God works it within our call to pursue faith. I can't tell you. The scripture doesn't tell us. But to be able to have faith means that you must be regenerated. And that must work as an instantaneous thing that changes our heart. It changes the whole nature of who we are. The governing dispositions, no longer are we deceived. No longer are we foolish. No longer are we disobedient. But a light comes on and all of a sudden the gospel of Jesus Christ becomes the water, the living water that Jesus Christ said that it would be. Because before it, we didn't see it but anything but a waste of time. This is the regenerating work. This is what separates us as evangelicals from every other form of Christianity. Evangelical doesn't mean that we evangelize, but we call out, we promote, we say that the only way that you can be a Christian is if you have had a born-again experience. And so we preach this. This is our gospel. This is all of who we are. Because what Jesus said to Nicodemus is you must be born again. Now notice, it involves the washing of the Spirit. And this idea here is that we are baptized into the body of Christ. And the symbolism there is, is important. We are baptized into the body by the Holy Spirit. Now this terminology is important because we are washed, we're made clean. The idea here is that new life now has been brought from death, has been brought from the darkest of sins, and brought into the light of Jesus Christ. 
Now, some of you may say, hey, Tim, I, I, I think I've been born again. I've gone down the aisle, and I've said the sinner's prayer, and, and I just don't feel it. And so every time that I've sinned a couple times, every time the pastor or the person says, accept Jesus Christ, I come back down, and it's like I'm getting a booster shot. Here's the thing that you need to know. The very important thing about the rebirth is the following. We just had uh, a family in our church, the Haas family, just had a baby, and the baby, not they didn't have the baby, I'm sorry. God bless you too, Dave and Karen. Um, their oldest daughter, Nikki, had a baby. Now, the important thing that we need to know is that there's a birth that's taking place. And how do we know a birth is taking place? Because we see a child, and that child is living, that child is active, that child is responding uh, to its world and the created uh, nature around it. And so likewise, you want to know if you're a child of God. You want to know, Tim, because it's not a warm and fuzzy feeling that you've pursued. It isn't because you've said a prayer that makes you born again. It is that there is proof that you have said, yes, I accept the free gift of grace. And now there is proof in that because you are eating and feasting on the word of God. You are living for Christ. You are pursuing. It doesn't mean that it's going to be perfect. But you are going to show signs of life. And my brothers and sisters, this may offend some of you, but if you cannot look and see signs of life within your Christianity, then I might say it may be good to look back and say, have I been born again? Now notice, he goes on, and he says, okay, you have to be born again. You can't do this on your own. It's not because of anything you've done. And he says it involves renewal. The idea of renewal is found in the theological term that we use of sanctification. Write this down if you've got some time. It says this. It's a shorter one. Sanctification, this renewal process, is the progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and like Christ in our actual lives. Now notice the difference between this and regeneration. It is a progressive work, not an instantaneous work, but a progressive work. It's ongoing. It's a continual process. It is a process between God and man. You have a part in this. You had no part in saving yourself, but you have a part in making yourself more like Christ. You can't do it by yourself. You need God. But you have a part in being free from sin and living like Christ in your actual life. He says that this happens. This is able to be done. Why? Because God has poured out on us generously the Holy Spirit. You say, Tim, I can't do it. Tim, I try to turn away from sin, and now you really got me nervous that I'm not born again. And so, hey, I hope you do a prayer at the end of this thing so I can get my booster shot, and I'll be back in good standing. Let me assure you of this, that even the best of believers will fail. Look at the life of David, a man after God's own heart, and not during his justification or his regeneration, but during his sanctification, he looks out and he sees Bathsheba and the selfish desires that are not annihilated by the justifying work of God, but the provision is there. He could have turned away and said, "Ah," and he did not look at those things, but he takes his look and he sits there and focuses in on it, and because of that, he breaks fellowship with his God and falls into sin. Some of you are there. And I will tell you, the process of sanctification, as you sin, it will bring great grief to you. 
It should cause pause. And you should say, hey, don't, don't go there. There should be a quiet voice in your mind that says, hey, don't pursue those things. If you don't have that, then something's not right. Because God says he generously pours out his spirit on us. It's a promise. He's done this. And if we don't see that being poured out in our lives, then we're missing something. i got to go on. Where justification then is used. Notice what he says. So that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Justification, look at this phrase or definition, is the instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven and as Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And he declares us to be righteous in his sight. What we learn from, junior, from uh, Sunday school on up is that justification means I am forgiven. That is only half the definition. The greatest definition is this, that justification, and I'm going to use Stan, I'm going to use you, you're a banker. Stan, I'm bringing all, here's, here's all my loans. It's an infinite amount of debt. I want you to have that. And Stan, being God, says, I'm going to take your Bible. This is all of God's righteousness and riches. And I exchange my debt for God's riches. We need to remember that. Because being regenerated, you can keep both there, brother. (laughs) Remembering that will remind us that there's nothing that we bring to the cross of Jesus Christ but debt and sin. And Jesus doesn't just forgive us. He doesn't just look at us just as if I never sinned. But he takes his righteousness and he pours out that righteousness on us so that when we get to heaven, the question will be, why should I allow you into my heaven? I hope and pray no one at Village Bible Church says, because I said a prayer. That's bogus. The reason why you are allowed into heaven is because, God, I put my sin on you and you gave me all your righteousness. And so I can stand before you, not on the righteousness of my own, but because of your son, Jesus Christ, who died for me. That is why you will be allowed into heaven. Because Jesus has given you all that he is and has taken all of who you are and got rid of it. That's justification. Now let's move on to a short point. He moves us through this because he gives us now the prospect of sonship. We don't have time to deal with this, but just simply because of this grace, now we no longer have to live like anyone else. We now can live like a son or a daughter of God. We are his heirs. We are given every blessing and every opportunity. Now there are two ways that we can see this blessing here on earth. We can see the blessings here on earth. What that means is we have all these blessings. God is always with us. He never will forsake us. He promises to meet our needs. He cares for me. He intercedes on my behalf. He leads me and guides me every step of the way. And there's thousands more. There's 7,000 promises that he gives us as believers in the Bible. But notice, it's also for eternity. We have the hope of a tomorrow that when we die or when Christ comes, we will stand before our God righteous, not having to give an excuse, not having to give a reason why we did not follow him, but righteous because we are justified where we will join the family of God and for all of eternity give God the praise and glory and enjoy eternity together with our maker and creator. That leaves us to one last reminder. 
And that is that Paul gives a pattern that we must strive for. What are we to do with all this? You say, Tim, a lot of theological jargon. What, I know that I'm a sinner. Well, what should it do? It should involve three things in our lives as we go to the table. It involves our witness. So remind the people, verse 1 says, to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to do whatever is, to be ready, uh, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, to show true humility towards all men. You want to show God and the world that you're saved? Start witnessing that saving grace in your life. Someone fails you, you pick them up from their failure and say, you know what, I was a failure and Jesus Christ rescued me. Someone hurts you, you don't sit there and demand repayment or demand revenge. You say, just as my Savior did, I want to be a witness to God's redeeming grace in my life, and I want you to see it. And so don't worry about it. Hey, hey, it's okay. I forgive you. There are marriages that need this. There are relationships that need this. Instead of looking at our governing authorities with great contempt, let us recognize that they too are foolish Because they too have not, not all of them, have seen the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And so what redeeming grace does is it calls us, as 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, to pray for those kings and all those who are in authority. Notice it involves our walk. The scripture tells us in Philippians 3.16 that, uh, in fact, I'll just read it very quickly. Philippians chapter 3 verse 16 says this. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. Christ has saved you. I will simply say this, now live like it. Live like it. Pursue the righteousness of which God has put on you because of Christ. And then notice our works. Everything that we do, he says this. He says these things are, pre- uh, are profitable, they're excellent, and he says that, uh, that those who have trusted in God, those who have been justified, those who have been regenerated, those who are being sanctified now, must be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good so that no one will see us as the sinner that we once were, but as one who is saved. Let us go to the table now. I'm going to ask Mary Ann to come and to, to play And we've got a couple minutes left before we close out this service. But as she plays, I want to ask you the question. The first question is this. Have you been saved? Have you been saved? Have you come to the point where the gospel of Jesus Christ has been declared and you have said unequivocally, yes, Jesus, I accept your gift of salvation. Jesus, I can't do anything. I'm a sinner, and I need your grace. And so to you, I come. The great hymn, just as I am, without one plea. But I come. So today, maybe there are some of you that need to come to Jesus. And what it simply is, is yes, Jesus, I receive you. Please forgive me of my sins and come into my life. And the Bible says what the definition told us is that the moment that a child or a sinner does that, he becomes a child of God. No longer is he a sinner, but now because of the grace of Almighty God, you are saved. And so take this moment now and go to this God that you've heard about this morning and bow the knee to him. For those that have never or that have trusted Christ as your Savior, Are you living like him? 
The gracious reminder of Scripture is yet one of many gracious reminders that we are given. This is one of them. But the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he took a, a cup of wine and he said, this is my body, this is my blood. And Paul tells the church at Corinth and us today that as we are reminded of this, it should remind us to examine ourselves and ask the question, am I living in a way that shows Christ to the world, that shows God I love him and I'm thankful for the cross of Christ and that I long to serve him? I want you to meditate on that, you believers today who have trusted Christ but who maybe have grown lax or legalistic in your pursuit, that at the end of the day, you come just like everyone else to the cross of Jesus as a sinner. Let's meditate on those things as the men come forward as we go to a time of communion. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we recognize that we are sinners, that none of us come because there was something in us that, that brought us. There's nothing that brought us here, Lord, except for your grace and mercy that has wooed our hearts and, and shown us your affection. And so, Lord, I pray that uh, we would be reminded of our problem with sin and that, Lord, this is a reminder that we can't live like that. That's how we used to live. And so, Lord, if there is sin in our lives, Lord, I pray that we would deal with it right now and say no more. By the power of your Holy Spirit that's been poured out on me, Lord, I I, want to be filled with that and not filled with the things of this world. Lord, that we would remember that problem we have with sin. Lord, I pray also that we would remember the person who has saved us. Twice in the passage we've looked at, God, you you say that he saved us. Lord, what a reminder that 2,000 years ago, your son Jesus came to be one of us, that he might redeem us from our sin. Lord, let our hearts revel in the thought that you loved us enough to send your one and only son. Lord, also I pray that this would be a reminder. Your word says that whether, when we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Lord, we are to live eager to do what is good to proclaim your goodness and your grace, whether in the words of of the salvation message or whether in the grocery shopping aisle or at work or at school. Lord, this is a reminder that we are different. We've been made different because of you and now we are to live differently because one day we know you're going to come and that we will give an account for how we lived in light of the gospel that we've received. And so, Lord, I pray that we have examined ourselves so we do not fall under your judgment and so that we may properly celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.